This is Curious Minnesota, a Star Tribune project that sends staff from the state's largest newsroom hunting for the answers to great questions we receive from you, our readers. We're here to answer everything you want to know about the state's people, places, and culture. Welcome to Curious Minnesota. I'm your host, Eric Roper. Okay, just a quick story to start today's show. So back in 2010, when I had just moved to Minnesota, some colleagues invited me to join them on a trip to Austin, which is near the southern border. So literally three days after I arrived in the state, I was walking around the Spam Museum learning about a food that I had never eaten before. I don't think it occurred to me at the time, but how many name brand foods have their own museum? There's Coca-Cola, Dr. Pepper, Jell-O, Hershey, not that many. But I understand now why the Spam Museum exists. This pork product has an incredible international backstory that has given it a worldwide fan base. Even our email inboxes have been reshaped by this Minnesota invention. Curious Minnesota superfan Sharon Carlson wanted to know the history of Spam. And reporter Brooks Johnson dug into the details for us, and he's going to join us today on the podcast. But first, here's Sharon. Spam, it was something that uh, I thought was an easy thing to discuss, is low-hanging fruit. And actually, Spam is the farthest thing from fruit. It's actually junk. And that's why they use that for computer problems and computer fraud and so forth is spam because there's really nothing nutritious about it. But anyway, it's been around for years and I've heard that soldiers from, I believe, World War II had spam as a way to get through their day. It's not good quality food, but it's fascinating that Minnesota has given it a chance to uh, thrive. Thanks so much to Sharon for submitting that question. Here's my conversation with Brooks. Well, Brooks, thanks so much for joining us today. So we're going to be talking about this compelling history of spam, which, listeners, I promise you, this is more... <laughs> I was surprised, okay, at this tale and how how surprising it is. Let's just put it that way. So, but before we do that, uh, let's just get out of the way some spam anecdotes. I don't have any spam anecdotes, except that I did go to the spam museum once. Uh, I probably ate some samples there, and I was uh, then in the grocery store the other day staring at a wall of spam, and I was about to buy one, and I didn't. So that's a terrible spam anecdote. But you actually have a spam anecdote. I have a spam core memory. Which is even better than an anecdote. It's a second level (laughs) anecdote. What is the spam core memory? Well, I was ice fishing with my then girlfriend, her brother, and a friend of ours on uh, Lake Melissa in western Minnesota. This is back in, uh, I don't know, 2006, 2007. And uh, we were out in January ice fishing and brought only, you know, a 30 rack of hams and, uh, and, uh, and some spam. Uh, to cook in case we didn't catch any fish. Well, we didn't catch any fish, and we ate a lot of spam. And I tell you, I mean, just the smell of it comes back right now with the, with the cold air around you, the warm sort of umami, salty meat smell and the taste of it, sort of the crispy on the edges but mushy in the middle. You know, it's it's very interesting. There's mm-hmm. nothing else like it. And so that really stuck with me. I didn't need a lot of spam after that. I did uh, for this story, but I, uh, <laughs> yeah, since Was then, that your first time eating spam? It had been, yeah. That was my first time having it. Wow, okay. So, uh, again, let's start the chronology. Let's just get into it because there's actually a lot of history to get into here. So we got to go back to 1891 with the founding of Hormel. So what, what is Hormel? What did, it, what did it begin as? So in 1891, the company that would become Hormel Foods uh, was founded as a meatpacking operation. They processed hogs into bacon, ham, and a variety of other pork products. Okay, so they're, they're finding uses for the pig meat, essentially. 
mean, that's kind of going on for a while. And we fast forward and you have Jay Hormel is the son of founder George Hormel. Is Mm -hmm. that right? Okay. And so he's basically saying like, this meat commodity business is too volatile, essentially. Yeah, it goes up and down. I mean, yes, you make money off it most years. Some years you don't. And that has a lot to do with prices, with supply and demand. I mean, it's just the ups and downs uh, were untenable. They wanted something that's a little more sustainable, something they could sell for the same price year after year and hopefully sell more of it year after okay. year. And so this is where we get to this like center of the store is something that's referred to in the story. What is the center of the store? I don't think that stores are arranged in the same way today, perhaps. But like at the time, what did it signify? Well, in the middle, you've got your time-saving products, uh, which are often canned or dried or preserved. Um, And and oftentimes today, yeah, they still are. Think about where you find pasta, right? Or Mm -hmm. where you'd find uh, spam today, right? Not Not on the edges of the store where fresh food and fresh meat are but toward the middle. And so oh. that's where Jay Hormel was looking uh, to sort of say like, hey, what if we found a product that could we could sell here? Right? Okay. So he starts off thinking big in this realm with a canned ham. Like they invented the canned ham essentially, or they were the first to produce that? Yeah. And well, they had quickly had a lot of imitators uh, came and flooded the market and brought prices down. But yes, they this had- This is a, a honking- It was a huge ham. Yeah. It's a big thing. It was pretty hard to, to take your can opener at home. Or folks just didn't want to, frankly. And so they got some use in food service at restaurants, but for the most part, the canned ham was uh, was short-lived. And there was a canned chicken as well. Yes. And they, d- they did a few canned uh, meat products, uh, but at the time there were a lot- more competitors uh, than there are now for this space. And so they, you know, it's hard to compete. And mm-hmm. so they had to find a product that actually stood out, that, that customers sought out, that they could only get from Hormel. Right. right. And they're trying to do this as the depression is ramping up, right? In yes. the same period. And not just the depression, but there's the first labor strike against Hormel in 1933. Okay. So workers were demanding higher pay, which put more pressure on the company to produce a reliable moneymaker. Again, this gets back to the volatile meat sales and, and Jay Hormel looking for something that they can really say like, well, I'll just take it right out of the Hormel history book mm-hmm. to keep every employee busy. Wait, so you're quoting now from the history book. Okay. Yes. Yes. To keep every employee busy, to pay them and to turn a profit, Jay Hormel believed a stellar product was needed that would become a household word. Okay, so that's 1933. We have the strike. 1936, now they're on to something. They've got the Hormel spiced ham, and this is cooked in its own can, but it's still kind of like just a It's a bit of a flop. There's too many imitators out there. Yeah, a lot of imitators, and there's just nothing that really makes it stand out, right? There's no catchy name. But this is the say. same product that we know today, essentially, somewhat. It yeah, it's a combination of ham and pork shoulder, which didn't sell well on its own, and you know, salt and spices. Okay. So this is like one of my favorite parts of the story. It's a it's a chilly night. It's New Year's Eve. I, I don't know if it was chilly, but let's assume it was. New Year's Eve, 1936, Jay Hormel's house. He's having a New Year's Eve party. All the executives are invited, and even like relatives of the executives are invited. I'm just imagining... Um, this scene. It must have been a fun scene, but there's a catch. There's a there's a twist to this party that would make history. What is the twist? Well, Jay Hormel offered $100 to whoever could come up with a name for this spiced ham product. $100 is pretty good money in 1936, so mm-hmm. folks put some pretty good uh, names forward. But the winner, of course, we all know now, 
was Spam, a portmanteau of spiced and ham. And that came from Kenneth Daigneau, who was a brother of a Hormel vice president. Okay, and you noted in the story that this kind of fits with some of the sort of other names that are emerging around this period. Yeah, in the 1930s, you had the premiere of brands like Ritz Crackers, Skippy Peanut Butter, and Kit Kat Bars. Uh, they premiered around the same time, and so they had that kind of punchy name, very memorable and uh, you know easy to say, easy to remember. And look, there it is on the shelf. Okay. So now the roller coaster ride really begins. This is, they call it the meat of many uses, and it's like an advertising blitz. Um, they're all over the place. And one that we noted in the story was that this was on a pretty prominent radio show at the time. Yeah, the Burns and Allen show, which also featured appearances by Spammy the Pig. When Spam launched in 1937, uh, yeah, big media blitz came out, national advertising campaigns, including one that, you know, said, cold or hot, Spam hits the spot. So um, this isn't just about a name. It's also about packaging. If you look on a shelf in the store and there's many different varieties of Spam, they're all in the same package. What's that all about? Well, originally it was fashioned after a canola oil can sliced in half, right? A can of canola oil that came in tins then. Um, and it hasn't really changed since then. Almost 90 years have passed and it's still the 12-ounce varieties come in this you know, sort of rectangular, rounded on the edges and the corners, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, a little bit taller than it is wide can. Um, right. You just, you just can't miss it. Yeah. It's iconic. And there was sort of a very stunning statistic here in your story where you note by 1940, 70% of urban American households were eating spam. That's just wild to think about. Well, I mean, what else can you say uh, that about today? Like even mm -hmm. coffee? Does does seventy percent of Americans drink coffee these days? Right. I mean, it's I don't. Uh, yeah, man. I don't know. There's there's no product that unites us maybe in the same way. I mean, we're probably forgetting something, but you know, it's a huge market share. Let's just put mm -hmm. it that way. Okay. So now we're going to shift into where this thing really goes into overdrive. World War II. World War II obviously sort of just changes realities in countries all over the world. And the U.S. government, you know, obviously ends up playing a key part in, in this war. And spam is sort of one thing that the government sort of calls upon to both feed its own troops, but also civilians, not American. I mean, I mean, maybe American civilians, but like British civilians, Russian civilians and American troops and other. I mean, so there's people literally all over the world suddenly eating spam because the U.S. government is putting its stamp on this product. Yeah. Uncle Spam really, uh, really did help <laughs> give the brand an <laughs> international name. I mean, mm -hmm. Hormel was sending 15 million cans of Spam overseas every week during the war. That was part of the Lend-Lease Act in 1941, which helped deliver food rations to allies, not just, you know, military allies, but their civilians, too, in Russia and, and in Britain. Mm -hmm. And so you actually have a quote here from, from Khrushchev, and he's talking about the war. And what is he saying about Spam? Because there's a couple sort of dignitaries that weigh in on Spam later in life about yeah. the war. But what, is, what did he say? Yeah, well, the, the former Soviet premier said that uh, while there were many jokes going around in the army, some of them off color about American spam. It tasted good nonetheless. And without spam, we wouldn't have been able to feed our army. Okay. And Eisenhower, he writes to Hormel in 1966 and he said, quote, I ate my share of spam along with millions of other soldiers. I'll even confess to a few unkind remarks about it, uttered during the strain of battle, you understand. But as former commander-in-chief, I believe I can still officially forgive you for your only sin, sending us so much of it, unquote. 
which is <laughs> just an amazing quote. And also, you note in the story that some troops were calling it ham that didn't pass its physical. That's kind of tells you a little bit about what some of these remarks would have been uh, behind the scenes there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, during under such stress, under such duress, you know, as Eisenhower points out, it's 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 this common uniting thing that like, yes, you can poke fun at it, but it's also giving you your protein, your, your salt and a little bit of fat. Uh, you know, it's it's a ration you need to survive and also something from back home. You can say like, well, straight out of Austin, Minnesota here in our on our plates in the Pacific Theater. Right. It's 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 wild. You know, right. and that really did help launch it to its international status. Yeah. There's even we put a photo on the story here of it's a Army Air Corps camp in the Pacific in 1943. And there's, you know, a bunch of bunch of guys uh, working at this camp and whatever. And there's like maybe a little building. And then above the whole thing, there's a big sign that says Spamville. So they've kind of, you know, jokingly named this camp Spamville just to give folks a sense of how ubiquitous this was. Okay, so this all then starts to promote this like international cuisine, which is where Spam ends up taking on this sort of like just long, long legacy. What are some of the variations of uses of Spam that have come out of all that? Yeah, well, Hawaii especially embraced the canned meat because uh, there was a large military presence there. And so Spam fried rice, Spam musubi, and other recipes, you know, quickly became well-known Hawaiian staples. Today, Hawaiians consume more Spam per capita than residents of any other U.S. states. Okay. And South Korea is another place where this Certainly. shows up? And that was part of a legacy of the Korean War, actually. And so uh, army-based stew includes spam hot dogs and cheese you know things you can find on american military bases to feed uh, a starving peninsula following the war okay so fast forwarding here how many cans of spam has hormel produced now more than nine billion cans have been made wow okay i think that's a lot of cans but i guess i'm not in the food industry so i don't know but it seems like a ton of cans it's a lot yeah and it took them uh, until 1959 so about 26 years to sell their first billion cans and uh you know less and less time in between each billion since then so okay. it just it just keeps picking up so it wasn't just a thing that was big during the war and then it drops off uh and is you know this international cuisine it's still very popular right and this is why they, they can sustain a museum in austin minnesota i mean yes it's attached to a corporation and it's kind of an advertising thing i'm sure but th- not many foods have their own museum i think it's kind of a huge deal that there's a museum down there yeah absolutely and it speaks not only to the legacy of spam uh throughout the world and its interesting history which we've just discussed but the the fact that it still is popular and they get international visitors folks from all over the world and the director of the museum tells me that folks come in and share their spam stories with her just like i did at the top of the podcast saying you know like oh i remember having it and the smell and the taste uh on this frozen lake Mm -hmm. folks all over the world have similar stories it just it's a it's the food stories you know really really help unite us and so they they love to come and, and see that in Spamtown, USA, right. Austin, Minnesota. So one thing that's playing at that museum is a Monty Python sketch, which we're not just talking about for the sake of it, because it actually plays into something pretty significant. So what is the sketch, first of all? Well, it's just called Spam. It first aired in 1970, and it uh, it mocks the ubiquity, the inescapable ubiquity of Spam at, at diners all over Britain and, and, frankly, in other parts of the world. And it, it ends with a group of Vikings singing and chanting, Spam, Spam, Spamity, Spam, 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 Spam. So the reason we bring this up is because this ends up sort of inspiring the use of the word spam to mean something that we see now every day. 
Yeah, let's talk about lowercase spam. Right. So that four-letter word uh, began referring to unwanted or repetitive messages uh, on an internet forum in, in 1993, and that was uh, first compiled by this uh, Internet Society, a reputable source, uh, writing about sort of the history of, of the term and, and, and just what spam is. The Internet Society was doing the research to figure out what the origins of that word were. Right. right. Okay, and they were saying that the Monty Python sketch inspired the word and the Monty Python sketch is inspired by the meat. And so therefore, uh, when you look in your inbox on the left-hand side or in your, you know, like you're in your Gmail and you see that spam folder, that all comes back to Austin, Minnesota and Hormel, which that kind of blew my mind, which is surprising because why would it blow my mind? I should know that. I mean, it should be pretty obvious, right? But I don't know if it is obvious until you say it. No, I mean, connecting the dots, it's, uh, it's. I mean, yeah, it's been a long road from Jay Hormel wanting to make money uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> from a canned meat product to, uh, yeah, open up your Gmail and there's your spam tab. Right. Uh, and it's it's just fascinating. Uh, the lowercase word, by the way, was added to the Oxford English Dictionary in 1998. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, Brooks, thank you so much for joining us. This is fascinating. Thanks, Eric. Okay, that's it for today's show. Thanks, as always, to Matt Gilmer for editing this podcast. Do you have feedback or a question you'd like to submit? Send us a note at curious at startribune.com. And if you're enjoying this show, please tell a friend about it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Curious Minnesota. We want to hear from you. Ask questions and read more stories online at startribune.com backslash curious. Our show is recorded at the Star Tribune's headquarters in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. And our music is produced by Matt Gilmer. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes or leave a review. And until next time, stay curious. <laughs>